I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. I just want to note that this episode contains some frank, not graphic discussion of a suicide attempt. So check for whether you're in the right headspace for that before popping this on in the car or wherever you're at in your day. Early in my career, I worked as a clinician on my city's mobile mental health crisis team. There were a lot of things I loved about that job, actually. The constant novelty, never knowing what you were going to get, kept things interesting. Crisis work is an area where there are a lot more extroverts than in most of the rest of the field for some reason, so I felt a little more at home in that setting than I might have in other community mental health workplaces. We had a lot of fun conversations around the office, a lot more laughs than you might expect from people who were going out and handling a steady stream of clients with meth-induced psychosis, very acute suicidality and violent ideation, not to mention the venomous family disputes, the cops, the long hours in emergency department waiting rooms, the witness stand at commitment hearings, and system failure after system failure when it came to getting people the kind of help they actually needed. I always used to say that a crisis mental health team would make a great sitcom if you could get over the hurdle of all our source material being confidential. We worked in teams with just two of us covering the whole county during the wee hours of the night shift. Sometimes we wouldn't get a single call and we'd spend the whole night rattling around the office, dozing or snacking or playing games on our phones. Other nights we'd be out the whole shift, zigzagging from one side of the county to the other, from roadside to hospital to single room occupancy building to suburban McMansion to hospital again. And then sometimes there would be what in crisis work was a perfect night. Not so much going on that you couldn't catch your breath or a couple hours of rest, or God forbid finish your notes, but not totally dead either. A couple of calls to keep it interesting, keep you limber. This was one of those nights. It was late summer and warm, the perfect Portland warm summer night. The air was dewy, and watching the twinkling streetlights through the car window, you'd feel like you were watching the whole city unwind after it had changed out of its work clothes. My partner that night was someone I loved working with, a really good clinician, someone I trusted. When you're working in teams like that, in a setting where there is some immediate life or death potential, the ideal partner is someone who shares enough of your values and your perspective that you don't run the risk of being pulled into a clinical decision that is out of your integrity or pulling someone else into a decision that is out of their integrity, but who is also different enough from you that they can give you some perspective on a case that you might not have had otherwise. And of course, it doesn't hurt if you can have some fun with the person too. So my partner and I got a page from the cops that perfect Portland warm summer night that was how it worked. The cops would page our cell phone, and we got this page out to the outskirts of the city where the cops had detained someone on the side of the road out of concern that the person was suicidal. As it happened, they were suicidal. They were very forthright about it, actually. And they're on the rumble strip with cars speeding by on their way to whatever mysteries the summer night held for them. My partner and I spent a good two and a half hours talking with this client. Two and a half hours in crisis team time is not the same as two and a half hours in outpatient time or certainly in private practice time. Very often, almost always, we would be making our assessments and decisions in a fraction of that time, sometimes because the case was pretty cut and dried or more often because of various external pressures dictating the parameters of the time we had to spend with any given client. 
Two and a half hours in crisis time is a lot. But on this occasion, we had the time and it wasn't cut and dried. The part where they were suicidal, like I said, that was really clear. What wasn't clear was the right decision. Now, when you are in a role where you are empowered to and obligated to make decisions about whether someone is an imminent enough danger to themselves or others to send them to the hospital against their will, you use certain heuristics, little algorithms that help you calculate risk in such a way that you will figure out first if they qualify for an involuntary hold and second, whether invoking that hold is the right and necessary thing to do. The first part's easier. We figured that part out in a matter of minutes. Yes, this client qualified for an involuntary hold. The second, was that the right thing to do? That's what we spent two and a half hours with them trying to decide. Sometimes when you get to spend a while with a suicidal client in a context like this, something pretty significant can shift in an hour or two. Their level of risk can go down quite a bit after having someone to talk to for a while or just having some time and space to regulate themselves outside of whatever the immediate situation that was triggering them. And with this client, it didn't. We finished out that two and a half hours, not at quite the same, but at very near the same level of risk that we started out with. And still, after a lot of very frank and serious discussion with each other and with the client, we decided to support them in going home. That despite the high level of risk, the potential for involuntary hospitalization doing this client more harm than good was enough to outweigh it. Later in the week, I walked into the office at my customary start time of 9 p.m., ready for a night of crisis management in the county, and found out that that client, the one we had spent two and a half hours with, had gone on a few days later to attempt suicide. This isn't something that happens actually as often as you might think if you haven't worked in a crisis setting. Having a client attempt suicide is not an everyday occurrence. It certainly is always enough of a possibility that there should be some sense within an organization of being prepared for it, but it's never not going to be a punch in the gut. We were rattled. I think most of my coworkers were rattled, but especially me and my partner who had formed a connection with this client and felt some responsibility for their well-being and the decision we had made that night, early morning, wee hours, to send them home. I remember a sense of not knowing what to do, like I should be doing something, but I wasn't sure what other than going over our decision again with a fine tooth comb and trying to see if there was a question we hadn't asked or a piece of information we should have bound somehow that would have tipped the scales in the other direction. If taking them or more accurately making them go to the hospital would have actually been the right thing to do. That dance where you look through the lens of hindsight and try to figure out whether there was something you should have been able to see even without that lens. And I did that. And my coworkers were helpful and supportive. And I did not hear a single word about it from our supervisors. Not a single word about that client, about our decision-making process, about whether my partner and I were okay. Not any of it. It was a few days before that partner and I were on shift together again, and I remember after shift change, after all our swing shift coworkers had gone home for the night, and it was just us two alone in the office together, we looked at each other from behind our respective computer screens. Have the supervisor said anything to you? He asked me. No, I said, nothing. Me either, he said. We were quiet for a moment, and then he said, makes me feel like I did something wrong. So I want to pause there and rewind 
to the last episode I did and the conversation I had with Rebecca Chang about dysfunctional mental health workplace culture, and in particular, ways in which the institutions that set the parameters of mental health workplaces obstruct the directive that therapists should always be doing our own work. While it may be in part obvious where I'm going with the connection between this anecdote I just shared about how this client's suicide attempt was handled and the idea of mental health workplace culture being dysfunctional, you may be wondering what all of this has to do with the idea of therapists doing their own work. So let's do this. When I look at the situation that I just described to you through the lens of a supervisor several years out, if I was that younger version of me's supervisor, I actually see a lot of opportunity there in that situation for self-work, for work as a clinician and for self-work. So let's unpack that first from a clinical standpoint, right? There is this opportunity to guide the clinician, that's me and my partner in this case, in exploring their clinical judgment. That process that I was describing before, going over the decision-making process and determining whether something different could or should have been done to lead to a better outcome, and if so, what? I would say that is an ethical responsibility in a situation like this to do some kind of debrief and assess one's decision making. So as a supervisor, one piece would be facilitating the clinician's examination of their own clinical judgment. Okay, so the second thing, how is the clinician doing? This sounds really basic, right? Your client attempted suicide. How are you doing? But it's actually much deeper than it sounds on the surface because if you are asking that question, you are encouraging the clinician to do the U-turn that Rebecca and I were referencing in our discussion, the return to self and attending to self that is so essential for any therapist to be able to make clinical judgments from a centered place. You can do all the debriefing of your decisions you want, but if you can't honestly reckon with the question, how are you doing? you're much more likely to be driven by unconscious motivations that overshadow sound clinical judgment. And that simple sounding question, how are you doing, actually has the potential to lead to all kinds of very fruitful lines of inquiry. For example, I think most clinicians, even if their decision-making process has been examined and determined to be sound and so forth, are going to, on some level, believe that they should have done something different to prevent this outcome, right? I should have been able to keep this from happening. Noticing that could be a great opportunity to explore themes around control and uncertainty and perfection, all sorts of things. And then if you ask the question, how are you doing with this? And the clinician says, fine, you know, and they really think that they're fine. That's a sign that there's some stuff to work on there too, because fine is actually not a congruent response to having a client attempt suicide. So we are talking about a missed opportunity here for the institution that I worked for to facilitate the self-work that we all or mostly agree is my obligation as a clinician. But actually, more than a missed opportunity, the response or lack of response from anyone in a position of any kind of authority in that workplace. That way of handling the situation actually creates an active obstacle for a clinician to do the kind of self-work that would benefit them and their clients. And here's how. It's that silence communicates something. We know that. As therapists, we know about the power of silence and how much someone is saying when they aren't saying anything. And how silence around something big, like a suicide attempt, says something like, this is too big to talk about. This is too scary to talk about. That's why my coworker said, it makes me feel like I did something wrong. Because silence about big things triggers shame. Again, we know that. 
Ask any person in that agency I worked in from bachelor's level direct service workers to the highest paid administrators. If you asked any one of them, does silence about suicide trigger shame? Does silence about suicide contribute to stigma? I am 100% sure that every person you asked would say yes. And yet, even in this crisis setting where we are supposed to be the ones who are the most willing to talk about these big hard things to say the word suicide, to go to the dark places where no one wants to go, even in that setting, there is this heavy presence of silence and shame. And when you weigh down an individual in any context with a burden of silence and shame, you are inhibiting their capacity to do self-work. Again, we know that. That's why with our individual clients, we do so much work excavating through silence and shame because we know real self-work can't progress until the weight of that kind of burden is eased a bit. So let's go back to that perspective, that lens of a supervisor in the situation that I described of being a supervisor in a crisis intervention setting where a client has attempted suicide and you have a bunch of rattled clinicians who are struggling to make sense of this experience. So I laid out for you what I think is an appropriate response for a supervisor in that setting, an appropriate way of guiding the clinician in using this experience as an opportunity to work on themselves as a human and as a clinician. And I stand by that. I think something like that is how my supervisor should have responded. And it's the advice I would give to a supervisor who found themselves in that position now. But it's very easy for me to say that from the relative comfort and safety of my private practice office, isn't it? Because let's be real about what else we see when we look through the lens of a supervisor in that setting. We see the massive specter of liability, right? because that feeling maybe I did something wrong didn't actually originate with me and my partner. The feeling of maybe I did something wrong if my client doesn't have a good outcome permeates the entire structure of this organization. This organization ostensibly exists to try and prevent bad outcomes. That's the point of crisis intervention. So if this time we didn't, there's a fear of some judgment coming down from some higher authority that we did something wrong. We fucked up. We let someone attempt suicide when we could have stopped them. To be clear, that's not how I see it. I still, for a number of reasons, stand by the decision we made that night. But I think it would be very easy for someone who was not directly involved in that client's care to see it that way. And there is a big fear of that, not just as the direct clinician, but as a supervisor too. And then that tugs on the strings of the funding because every nonprofit and or government-funded organization in mental health is constantly vying for funding. So there is a fear of not being good enough to keep getting the money and the whole thing collapsing. I mean, that has happened. Organizations do fold because of things like that. There is a very real precarity and scarcity that drives this fear and this need to perform to a certain standard, even if it's an unrealistic and in fact impossible standard you can't prevent every bad outcome. When I look through the lens of my supervisors at that time who said nothing, who didn't ask me how I was or debrief this case with me or my partner in the way that I believe they should have, I can't simply lay the entirety of the blame on those individuals either. The entire system is structured so that they were also carrying this burden around control and uncertainty and perfection in the first place, and also not being supported in confronting those burdens honestly and explicitly. And so these dysfunctional habits are just being reinforced and reproduced up and down the chain. This is an organizational problem. 
This is why it's not enough to talk about being trauma-informed or to have trainings on being trauma-informed or even to have the honest intention of acting in a trauma-informed way, which I believe my supervisors very much did. It's not enough to enumerate the ways that we supposedly support professional development or to say that we believe clinicians should be supported in doing their own self-work, all the better to serve their clients. We need to get honest about the serious organizational challenges to trauma-informed workplaces and to therapist self-development. And to do that, we need to square ourselves with the reality that the organizations we interface with as therapists, from graduate degree programs to community mental health agencies, to private group practices, to licensing boards, to healthcare payers, whether that's Medicaid or private insurance companies, they all have their own agendas. And while it's certainly the case that some of the time, in some ways, those agendas may overlap with our own, much of the time they don't. And often those agendas are actually working at cross purposes to supporting therapists' capacity for personal and professional development. Start with grad school. Rebecca spoke very incisively about this in our last episode that grad school is a business. The core objective of a college or university is to sustain itself and continue operating. That doesn't mean that no one involved in operating that institution cares about their educational mission, in this case, training therapists. Obviously, yes, there are people involved who care very deeply about that. However, the guiding principle is fundamentally, if something contributes to funding and maintaining that institution, do it. And if it doesn't, don't. So we see these programs running in ways that benefit the institution to the detriment of their students. Whether that's admitting an unmanageable number of students at a time, whether that's hiring inexperienced or underperforming faculty so that the school can sustain its operating capacity, or not being able to retain high quality faculty because they're being paid a pittance, whether it's charging exorbitant rates for graduate programs and sending students into massive student loan debt, and then using that money to fund lavish campus facilities to attract undergraduate students, whether it's charging students tuition money to work as therapists in what your last two to four semesters of graduate school, right? We've all been there. And then you take that institution where the core objective is to act in its own self-interest and you stick a bunch of emerging therapists in there, mostly people who have been high achievers, good grade getters, who are anxious about being good enough in the first place and you jam them through this curriculum and tell them to get, what, 10 sessions of therapy to prove that they're doing their own work, self-paid of course. These are far from the optimal conditions to start out a career of courageous and vulnerable self-examination and radical honesty. And then these grad programs where in many ways we are starting out on the wrong foot are these feeder organizations for community mental health agencies that also have their own agendas towards self-perpetuation. And for most of them, that means grant funding. And grant funding is not, in my opinion, a super stimulating and thrilling topic. But suffice it to say that when we have organizations competing for grants and government contracts, one big factor is who is saying that they are going to do the most for the least amount of money. And what that means for you when you get sucked into that organization as an employee is that you are not being paid well. Perhaps somewhat more so if you have the benefit of a union and your salary has been collectively bargained for. But even under those circumstances, it's pretty slim pickings out there, in part because these bargain basement grant-funded positions have then set the standard for what clinicians in those roles are generally paid. 
So a minute ago, I said that the organizations that dominate this area of the field are the ones who have made a convincing case that they will do the most for the least amount of money. So your salary sucks. That's the least amount of money part. And then there's the do the most part. So in addition to your salary sucking, you are also overworked because your organization has promised a high level of productivity to the stakeholders, i.e. the bigger, more powerful organizations writing the big checks. And these are the conditions in which on one hand, at least one person, if not many, many in your organization is going to have given you some whole spiel about self-care and work-life balance. And on the other hand, the continued existence of the organization is predicated on you being overworked and underpaid. Those are not anything approaching the optimal conditions for self-work. We all know that people who have to worry less about their material security and who have more downtime simply have more capacity to devote to personal development. And yet, even in the face of that obvious truth, you're still getting the self-care spiel. And another thing that really gets in the way of meaningful self-work is being told to ignore and disregard obvious truths. So there's that layer too. Then there's the ubiquitous fear of the licensing board, whose role, as Rebecca pointed out, is about protecting the public from our potential misconduct, which is fine and necessary in many ways, but is also a source of inhibiting fear and shame when a therapist feels like they may have made a big mistake or that someone else thinks they've made a big mistake. Then there are insurance companies whose agenda is to make money for insurance companies and are very much willing and able to engage in some underhanded and frankly malevolent practices to do that. I don't hear people say explicitly often that the majority of therapists who take insurance are also very much underpaid. That's a bit of an untouchable subject, it seems, a lot of the time, but I'm going to touch it because this is yet another factor that is really dragging therapists down. So I recognize that the tapestry I'm weaving here is pretty bleak looking. It is. I'm not going to end this episode by enumerating a list of solutions because what I could propose, I mean, I think they would all be band-aids. If we're going to build a culture inside this field, a culture that really supports therapists in our full authenticity and our personal evolution in the way that we say is so necessary to our work as therapists, if that is going to be the overarching culture of this field, we actually need radical institutional overhaul. And I think that's possible and even maybe eventually inevitable, but it's not going to happen by next week or next year when we're looking at a problem so deeply systemic. A little solution tacked on at the end of a podcast episode is not really the thing. But I think we make a start by naming all this by being honest with each other and with new clinicians too about what we're all up against, the obstacles we are collectively and individually facing when it comes to really finding and maximizing our integrity in this work and within the institutions that we operate in. It's no simple thing to do your own work. And for us therapists, it's both an obligation and a quite radical act, I think, in the face of all this. So have at it. It's not just you. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow A Therapist Can't Say That wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you know a therapist who needs to feel less alone out there in the wild world of this work we do, please make sure to share the show with them too. You can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. If you'd like to share anything with me about your own dysfunctional mental health workplace culture experiences, or if you want to tell me about your A Therapist Can't Say That moment, 
I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at revetintothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.